The Booknook on WYSO was presented by the Greene County Public Library, with additional support from Wright Memorial Public Library, Clark County Public Library, Tip City Public Library, Dayton Metro Library, and Washington Centerville Public Library. Hello, welcome to the Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis, and I've been joined on the telephone by Randy Overbeck. He's got a new novel out. It's called Cruel Lessons. Uh, welcome back to the program, Randy. Um, it's, I'm delighted to be uh, to be joining you again today, Vic. It's good to be back. How many books is it now? Uh, Cruel Lessons is number five. This is uh, my fifth published novel. The last four with the same company, um, uh, Wild Rose Press. Um, uh, and more to come. I just got off the email with an agent for the book after this. So I'm, I'm very excited about where my writing career is going right now. Good. And, and I guess we need to mention that you are a guy from our area. What, where are you right now? I'm in Lebanon. I, 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 uh, I'm, uh, I'm in, I've lived in Lebanon for the past 30 some years and kind of a hail from the Green County, Warren County area for most of the last 40 years of my life. And where are you from originally? I was actually born and raised in Cincinnati, on the west side of Cincinnati. Okay. But uh, once I started my career, I've never really been, well, I've been back all the time for family, but I've never really been back for a business. So I've spent my career um, in most of southwest Ohio, Washington Courthouse, and Lebanon, um, Piqua, uh, Shelby County. Um, both rural counties. I was I was a city boy, but I've spent a lot of my time in uh, in rural counties and really have enjoyed life in the small town and life in rural in rural Ohio. So you really know Southwest Ohio, Ohio then? I do. I, yeah. I, I've, I've I know Southwest Ohio pretty well, and I think well enough to uh, to be able to tell stories about it that that ring true. I think. And this is a career as an educator that you're alluding to. Yeah, Forty years serving children. Almost exclusively in Ohio, a couple of years in 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 uh, Kentucky as a school te- as a teacher, uh, college professor, and a school leader. Uh-huh. Uh, tw- the last twenty eight of those, I ran school districts, four different school districts as a superintendent or assistant superintendent. Well, my uh, mother's father was a superintendent of schools, so I can relate. I ca- I kind of know what, what that gig is like uh, from having witnessed him, and your book, Cruel Lessons. I'm guessing this might be the most autobiographical book so far. Uh, that's true. It is actually, um, there are elements of me that I built into the main character. And the the story is actually inspired by um, not, none of what happened in the, in the, in my fictional version happened in real life, but other instances involving drugs with kids is what inspired me to write this particular story. And what year is this uh, set in? I, I was trying to this, figure that out. It's set in 1995. Okay. Was, it was a, a deliberate choice on my part. I, um, I, I wanted to write a metaphor for um, the current drug problems we are experiencing now, but I, I wanted to avoid kind of the political maelstrom of something that's uh, contemporary. So I thought by creating a fictional drug in this particular time in 1995, it might draw some interesting parallels for the president. The other reason is because I know from my experience that, you know, schools have always tried to address problems that are laid at our doorstep as best we can. 
sometimes we do that well, other times we don't do that very well. And at this particular time in um, in school and education in the mid '90s, there were two programs called the Dare program and Just Say No, both of which are highlighted in the books. We know now, looking back historically, that they were not at all successful in what their goal was of reducing uh, student drug use. Um, one was Just Say No was an incredibly simplistic approach, and the Dare program. Um, was successful in improving the relationship between students and and uh, officers in the police force, but it never really showed any uh, evidence of actually reducing uh, drug use among youth, mm. which was its original intent. So against that backdrop, that historical backdrop, I'm trying to set the story, and I'm hoping that there are uh, parallels that people can take to what we're struggling with today with kids' uh, abuse of drugs. I was wondering about this drug. I, I didn't Google it, but when I read about it, I thought, this kind of sounds like something more contemporary. I, I'm not really that familiar with with drug abuse these days, but I know that um, fentanyl, for example, which is probably the most dangerous drug out there that's commonly used, is also a, a, an actual pharmaceutical product uh, that's used for real medicine and yet right. it's so abused and it's so dangerous. And I'm, I'm going to guess that maybe you can do fentanyl the way that this drug is administered in your story? Well, no. I, as far as I know, um, I've tried to create a drug that doesn't have any uh, exact parallel. So in the story, okay. the students, one of the uh, unusual characteristics of this drug is that it's so powerful that in a tattoo applied to your, a temporary tattoo applied to the arm, it absorbs through the bloodstream and then floods the bloodstream and, and does its work that way. Okay. As far as I know, other drugs can't do that. Um, All right. They're not that strong to be able to be ingested that way. And and what I, it, it is a fictional drug. It doesn't exist. I, right. I simply created it for the story. Mm -hmm. But I did research with uh, both uh, written research and then sitting down with drug users, and it is kind of akin to LSD, but it's a kind, of, it's a more, it's a more dangerous drug than LSD. And I tried to make sure that, uh, you know, like many other parts of the book, as I, I was meticulous in my research to try to make sure that if somebody who has some understanding of drug use will read this thing and go, okay, that might happen that way. Mm -hmm. The book is Cruel Lessons. I've been joined by the author, Randy Overbeck. And as the story opens, uh, there's a, a school uh, camp camping thing going on, and uh, these young boys are getting ready to do something really, really bad. Can we set this up? I mean, it's just the beginning of the story. We, we can say what yeah. happens, can't we? Yes, we can, of course. Okay, that's, that's tell us what happens. Well, um there are three boys originally uh, that have this idea to sneak off and try this drug that's, that they've heard about, and uh, one of led by their leader, of course. And one, another kid, a fourth, a fourth kid that's not part of the group, uh, kind of stumbles into them is the best way to put it. And the, the four of them end up uh, first taking a joyride. Uh, the, 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 the kids in the story are only 12, and the one kid is 13. Um, but the 13-year-old has been in a lot of trouble, and he's – anyway, he thinks he knows how to drive a car. So they get in the car, and um, 
and then do drugs, do this drug, do the, apply this drug to their thing, and um, and then uh, the hallucinations start, and uh, you know, put together inexperience, youth, a car, and these hallucinations, and really terrible things are going to happen, and that's that's how the book opens. Okay, you were, I, I like the way you danced around that and not spoiled it for readers. Uh, my, my guess is Randy Overbeck, and okay, so. This really bad thing happens, and then we bring in our investigator, Assistant Superintendent Ken Parks, who I'm guessing has uh, some of your uh, attributes, some of your traits, some of your experience. I'm guessing you've probably um, opened a few lockers in your time looking for contraband. I have. The the experiences that uh, Ken has to go through in terms of uh, investigating this crime along working alongside with the police um, is is an experience that I had several times as as a superintendent or assistant superintendent uh, not a pleasant one on my on my part but um, either looking for either uh, drugs or uh, weapons using where the the two or the two times that I had to do this and and it was not uncommon to do the kind of interrogation that 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 uh, Ken Parks has to go through to kind of sort out exactly what happened with these kids and how did they get the drugs. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing that I did a few times, uh, more than a few times in my career, yes. That's the thing that they're trying to figure out. They're trying to figure out how did these kids get these drugs in this middle school that prides itself on not having any drugs available in that school. And, and for anybody who's been to uh, high school in the last 50 years or so, they know that when the administration trumpets the fact that there are no drugs, that they could probably, back when they were in school, if they wanted to, they could walk right around the corner and go to that locker and the kid over there would sell them some drugs. Right, exactly. <clears throat> it is part of, uh, of the naivety. I'm hoping that one of the, one of the, uh, one of the fun things that I've created in this story is that you know this, the the, uh, the cast of characters in this in this story are all within the school universe. So they're all teachers, principals, superintendent, board members, uh, custodians, secretaries. And what I'm hoping the readers enjoy doing is both they're all everybody that we interact with are all good guys or bad guys, and we don't know who they are. And the reader has to help along with Ken sort out who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. Mm-hmm. You uh, you have some characters in here who are definitely bad, but we don't know that. We're, we're suspecting maybe they are, and you have some surprises along the way here. I got the feeling that you really enjoyed depicting who the uh, culprits are eventually. I, I got the sense that you kind of got some uh, enjoyment out of this. Well, that's very astute of you. It, it, uh, all of these characters that are in there are based on people that I really knew. I never worked with anybody, any uh, teachers, administrators, custodians, anybody that I had to deal with that were pushing drugs or were responsible for kids' deaths. But, but I, I did try to fashion the characters with some characteristics um, that of people that I work with, you know, I, in my in my in my forty years in education, I work with thousands of adults uh, serving children, and the vast majority of them are uh, highly committed and empathetic, and mm-hmm. uh, want to do everything they can to serve kids. But just like any other profession, 
we have bad apples in there and more than and I have more than and I interacted with more than a few whose only real interest was their own self-interest and if that meant um, stepping over another staff member or ignoring kids needs then that happened uh-huh. so I you're right I did have some fun kind of twisting experiences of people that I that I worked with uh-huh. into these fictional characters that I created you're listening to the book nook we'll be right back the book is cruel lessons by Randy Overbeck you're listening to the book nook on 91.3 WYSO sharing community voices through inspired storytelling it's a thriller it's a crime novel it's a mystery and when we get to the end we realize that you just were writing a romance novels what you were doing <laughs> uh, look, try to include a little bit of romance romance uh, uh, in the pages anyway uh-huh yeah well uh, that was well done of course anyone who knows how this stuff works we can feel it because there's this other uh, character who's a, who's a very important character, and we learn a lot about her past, and we also have this bad marriage. Your investigator's marriage is on the rocks, but he's such a busy guy. He doesn't really see this, does he? No, he does not. He, he's uh, his fault is he's not he's not oblivious to it because he's aware that things are unraveling. But he kind of feels helpless to stop the, stop the train before it wrecks. And both of these central protagonists have these puzzles that, that we're trying to solve as readers. We're trying to figure out what terrible thing happened many years ago that they hate thinking about but haunts them. And, and both the characters have these situations in their past that involve drugs and are horrible. Well, and I, what I was attempting to do in these two characters uh, was create uh, individuals who were credible, who motives would be credible. So the one reason that um, um, our main character, Ken, is so insistent on trying to get to the bottom of, of this and trying to find a way uh, to stop more kids from getting this drug and possibly dying is because of what happened in his past and what he feels was his earlier f- failure as a young man. So mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm hoping that that, you know, my goal was in creating that character was that that gives him a higher level of credibility. And and I, I the other character that we're talking about here are the female uh, POV that the story is told from, uh, Stacy. that, um, you know, I, I'm trying to, what I've tried to do is create, let know that nobody's perfect. Even though she appears to be a great teacher and really cares about the kids and everybody notices it, but she's carrying her own baggage that's pretty serious as well. Mm -hmm. I usually will pick out a favorite peripheral character when I'm reading a novel like this. And I knew right away when you introduced a particular character that this was going to be my favorite peripheral character. Do you know who I'm talking about? Uh, no, I don't. I'm curious who you, you thought your, who you, your favorite personal character was. The janitor. <laughs> I love uh, this Wally. guy. I love him. Well, yeah. And Wally is based on several janitors that I've uh-huh. worked with over over a period of time as well. Yeah, he's he's a good one. He's a keeper. Yeah. <laughs> B- because well, and I, you know, I, I, uh, one thing people don't really understand is that janitors often know 
more about what's going on in the building than anybody else. Exactly. So that's why I made him an integral part of the story. Exactly. And as you mentioned in the story, he's talking about how he can be all these different places and be kind of invisible uh, that you don't notice him. He's the one where you look at the formal fo- photograph and, and he's always in the background, but you don't remember he was there, but he was there watching. Right. Yeah, so one of the challenges I had with this book, uh, Vic, as opposed to the earlier books is, and I, I, as an astute reader, you probably noticed, that I had to manage, I have seven different POVs, the story is told from, uh-huh. um, which is not an easy task to do. And one of those POVs was this, um, was our, 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 our janitor, our, co- no, I'm sorry, he, he would object to that, our custodian. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, and so I had to work really hard to try to make sure that I not only had a different voice for each one of those seven characters, but that the voice was on with who that person would likely be. This is actually a story that I have been working on for 30 years. I believe it. You know, I've worked, I, it, I had a, the earliest skeleton of this was written in the 90s. And then I've resurrected it two or three times since that time. But I didn't really feel I had the skill to be able to tell it until now. Was it really the first book project and you just kept it was. putting it back in well, the drawer? The first long-term book project that I, that I had done. Yeah, before that, I had done some short stories and submitted some short stories. But yes, mm-hmm. that this was... Uh, it wasn't very. It wasn't successful, obviously, when I first started it in the '90s. But, but you know, it sat in the virtual drawer and waited for me to grow up and mature as a writer to be able to tell that. Because I didn't realize when I put together, but uh, tr- you know, trying to balance seven POVs and to do it in a way that's convincing and you don't lose the reader and stuff, uh, it was a real challenge. Mm. It really was. And so you've honed your craft over the last decades. And we're finally able to return to it and say, okay, I'm finally ready. Yeah, and I, I think it's the best I've written thus far. I'm, I really do. I'm, uh, it's certainly the most challenging that I've written thus far. And it doesn't have the woo-hoo of, of my ironic, uh, haunted shore mysteries and stuff. But, but I think it has enough to keep people's interest just with, uh, with the story itself. My goal in writing it was, I was you know, I, I'm hoping... The, the millions of people who have had experiences in public school, I'm hoping that they will say, I had a teacher like that. I remember a principal that was kind of like, you know. Mm-hmm. So they'll be able to relate to the characters that are in the story. And and certainly the, the janitor. They'll be able to relate to the janitor. The custodian. Custodian, that's yeah, right. right. Well, you have some fun. And middle school custodian, as Wally would say. Yeah, you have some fun twists in here. And the thing I liked about it a lot was, as I was reading it, we have so many children in the story, so many young people, and they really felt real to me. Like, I I kept thinking, you know, this is a writer who knows kids, who understands kids, who's been around them, who's observed hundreds and hundreds of them, and he's been able to crystallize those experiences into depicting these kids. Yeah. The story revolves, of course, around... Uh, those kids that we talked about in the very beginning. And, and one, you know, I, I have several uh, hopes with, for this book. And one of them is that, that you know, uh, the, the kids who die early in the story, uh, mo- the three of those kids are what we would call at-risk kids or kids on the edge or kids 
And as we see in the story, the, re- the reaction to their deaths ranged from everything from uh, sympathy and, and, and grief to, well, it's going to happen sometime sooner or later anyway. You know, you know how these kids are. And that kind of thing is I, I saw many times in schools, and I was dismayed by educators' ability to dismiss kids that happen to come from those backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to try to capture that within the context of the story. That's why Ken is so upset because people are willing to just move on. Let's just move on. Mm-hmm. We meet the parents of some of these kids, and, and you're, you're pretty uh, candid about how some of them are. They're, there's a reason why these kids are at risk. These, the, the families they're coming from are, are going through some tough stuff. Yeah, and I wanted to kind of have, have that as a layer to the story as well. So, yeah, I, yeah. And that's, a, you know, I, I don't know that I ever interacted with a kid who had, who was in trouble, who usually, if the kid was in my, was in my orbit, they weren't there getting an award. You know, they were there because I was having to deal with suspension or expulsion or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And my experience with that, I don't know that I ever dealt with a kid that when I had to come face to face with the parents, that the, the adult version was usually worse than the, than the ch- child version. Uh-huh. Well, when I was in high school, I had good grades. I was an officer in student council. I was kind of a student leader. And so one day I got this notification. I was in homeroom and they said, uh, the vice principal wants to see you in his office. And I was absolutely terrified. And I went, I went down there and he says, yeah, Vic, uh, we want to name you as our delegate to Boys State. And I was like, oh, I said, well, I don't know well, about I that, know. but I, I, I was nervous. I thought, yeah. well, why do you get called into the office? It's only going to be because you're in trouble. Yep. That's usually, and if you get called to the district office, it's a different level of trouble. So, oh, I don't even know what that's district, about, the district office. Well, the that, district level only gets involved usually with, well, uh, things like drugs or, or – or, or suspicion of guns, and they get involved in that area. Oh. And then the other area is when kids get to to a point of discipline that they're beyond school discipline, so they're either getting suspended, which is up to 10 days that they're being kicked out, or they're being expelled. Mm. You're gone, you're done. That's all. That's not done at the school level. That's all done at the district level, and that's the part that I got involved with. Yeah. Right before we called you, I was reading an editorial, an op-ed piece in the New York Times, written by an author I've interviewed before. He's an editor of a paper in Northwest Iowa in a pretty small town. And in his editorial, he writes about how when they were in school, sometimes they would bring their shotgun to school to keep in their locker so that they could go right out after school and hunt pheasants. And I thought, wow, times have really changed. Uh, as As an administrator... What are your thoughts about the the current situation with all the school shootings? Well, you know, it, it's uh, sad to me. First of all, I have to be very, very grateful that I, in my um, 28 years of running districts, um, we had uh, one or two close calls, but we never had to deal with that issue. So we had one or two times where we learned that a kid had a gun that may have had some ill intent, but we were always able to intercept that before that actually occurred. Um, I, I, you know, and I can't imagine how difficult the current 
the spate, the uh, just ongoing. I mean, it looks like every other month we're going to have another school that's got eight kids mowed down by somebody. Um, what are my thoughts? Uh, you know, uh, it's like um, our our right to bear arms has gone crazy. Um, I mean, we when I was in school, we did everything we could uh, short of metal detectors of trying to make sure that there was no there was no uh, harm to come to kids. Uh, we even, if we heard, we searched uh, trunks. So I don't know if you know that or not, but in schools, at least in Ohio, um, you park your car in the school parking lot, uh-huh. the car is, is, can be searched because you're on school property. Uh-huh. So, so if we would hear, so the two times that, that I know of that I was involved with the team that worked with this, the guns were in the trunks of the car, uh-huh. but we were able to go out and and intervene. I'm actually considering the second, um, the second entry in this series will be about a school shooting in the nineties. Oh, this is a series. Yeah. This is the first in the series called lessons in peril. Okay. Well, involving the same two characters. Okay. So are we going to be in Oregon next? Well, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't, Got that far yet? I, okay. I kind of know the structure of the of what I want for the story to be. I haven't decided if I'm going to bring them back to Ohio or have them someplace else. Um, well, aren't they have, in, aren't they in Pennsylvania in this one? Isn't it Portsmouth, no, Pennsylvania? They're actually, they're, actually, I don't really have them any. I never really mentioned a state. I thought you said Portsmouth, actually, Pennsylvania. I, I could have sworn no, I, there was one spot where you said Pennsylvania. Oh, maybe but, it was Pennsylvania. Yeah, I think you it's said cool. Portsmouth, Pennsylvania, yeah, right, and I correct. I googled it. And I found there was a Portsmouth Railroad in Pennsylvania, but I couldn't yeah, find a town. Not, I knew there no, was a town in Ohio called Portsmouth. I know. It's, I wanted it not to be a real town. So, oh, okay. Um, well, that I, was my intent. I was I curious. Wanted, I, I, my, my goal was to make it a Midwest town. So, okay. All right. You know, so I was trying to stay within Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, you know, that kind of stuff. So I may bring them back to the Midwest, or I may not. But, you know, I have other, like— I have a completely different uh, um, manuscript in the in the works now with an agent that's historical, and right now I am oh, about twenty five percent through with the fourth entry in the Haunted Shore Mysteries. So, you know, and then I'll get back to doing the second entry in this particular series. It sounds like you've uh, really found a niche for yourself, and, and forget about retirement, huh? Yeah, I don't. My, my wife says you don't know how to retire. Do you? I said no, I really don't. You know, I, in addition to the writing that I do, as you might know, Rick, I do I do lots of book talks. So last year, I did thirty two, I think, all across the United States. Um, so um, and I have a dozen already scheduled for this year. So that's a big part of how I promote myself and promote the books and kind of get stories out there. And stuff. So between the writing. And, uh, that marketing and then doing the book talking, it's, it keeps me as busy as I want to be. Let me put it that way. How do you get these gigs? How do you find the place where you're going to speak? How, do they contact you? Have they heard about you? How does this work? Uh, uh, there are a few to do that, but not normally. I mean, I just had one do that this particular week, but as, uh, but it's only because they heard me talk someplace else. So usually I will reach out to them with a, with a, a program that they are interested in. So, for example... I do a program called uh, Things Still Go Bump in the Night, which is about the role that ghosts play in the culture in America. Oh. 
and and it's it's a fun thing. It talks about uh, the role of ghosts in religion and um, and in entertainment and and in incredibly famous people who believe in ghosts. And I showed them pictures, historical pictures have been documented of ghosts and stuff like that. Uh-huh. And then at the end, I'll do a little three minute thing on my books and stuff. So it's it's a fun program for them. I've gotten lots of great comments on it, and then and then it gives me a chance to uh, get uh, get people more interested in my books at the same time. So I I have actually have four different programs that I've done over the years. I've got a new one that's coming out this year called Everything You Want to Know About Book Publishing But Couldn't Care Enough to Ask. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fun, interactive thing, uh, having them learn about what it takes to go from a manuscript to get a book published and you know how how let's see one of my one of my uh, interactions part is how many minutes a day does the adult american read and they have a multiple choice one that the group's trying to respond to so so those kinds of things so i have my goal is to provide them with something that they like and it's fun and it's interesting and then by way of doing that i tell them oh i know all this because i'm a writer and here's my book stuff like that mhm well, I, I saw somewhere a statistic, maybe I saw it in in your work, where they said that 75% of Americans didn't read a book last year, is that? That's correct. Something 24% like that? said that they've read a book, that's right. Yep. That's crazy. Well, that, well, that was in 22, which is the latest year we got okay. statistics from. Yep. Well, Randy, it's really been a pleasure talking to you, and i got to admit, I chuckled when I read uh, your quote in the book from Mark Twain about school boards. <laughs> I, I, I got a good laugh out of that. I have to. I, I got to put a disclaimer here. I do love the quote, uh, uh, and it is actually from Mark Twain. In the beginning, God, uh, God created idiots. That was for practice. Then God created school boards. So I thought that's, and it definitely fits in this particular story and mm-hmm. Ken's frustration with uh, working through the system. Right. Well, Randy, thanks again for your time. Thanks for having me, Vic. It's as always. It's great. Uh, conversing with you, and I look forward to our next talk. My guest has been Randy Overbeck, and his new novel, the first one in a new series, is Cruel Lessons. Don't touch that dial. We've got a little extra time on the program today. We're going to bring you a Book Nook bonus segment right after this. You're listening to the Book Nook on WYSO, and we had a little extra time this morning for a bonus segment and we went back into our archive and pulled out an interview that I did back in February of 2009, 15 years ago. It was the second interview I did with a writer named Eric Kraft. And I'd had him on the show back in 2002 for a book called Inflating a Dog. And then he returned for this interview that we're about ready to listen to. And Eric is an amazing guy. He created a parallel universe based uh, to some extent upon his own life. And these are memoirs, a series of memoirs. And when I talked to him 15 years ago, he had just published the 10th book in the series, but it really was three books. And the whole thing is really fascinating. This, This alternate world that he created and the fantastic things that happen in it are utterly amazing. Let's listen now to Eric Kraft, recorded back in 2009, talking about what turned out to be, from my research, the final book in this series of memoirs on the book nook. 
you've created your own parallel universe. <laughs> yeah, right. The memoirs of a fictional character who seems to live in a, a place very much like the America that we live in, but uh, reflected in a funhouse mirror. And his name is Peter. That's right, Peter Leroy. Where did this guy come from? Well, um, it really is true that I dreamed him up one day when I was a, a sophomore at uh, Harvard and was um, studying for uh, a German exam and fell asleep. And when I woke up, found that I had fallen to the floor, dropped my books to the floor. I'd been sitting with just on just the uh, back two legs of a chair with my feet up on a table. And I was embarrassed because everyone was laughing at me. And I gathered my books and rushed out into the the cold air and a little, just a tiny little snapshot of a memory from a, a dream I'd had came to me of a little boy sitting on a dilapidated dock um, in the warmth of a sunny day, dabbling his feet in the water. And over the years, that boy has become Peter Leroy, and he's an indefatigable memoirist. He just keeps writing about his life. Did you grow up on Long Island by any chance? I did on the South Shore in mm -hmm. Babylon. Mm -hmm. Babylon, what a wonderful name. Is that kind of like Babington? It's something like Babington. Mm -hmm. There are people in Babylon who claim that they lived next door to certain characters in Peter's uh, world, but that uh -huh. can't be. And this is the Long Island Sound where there's uh, a lot of uh, mollusk activity. <laughs> At least right. there used to be. Yeah, it's actually not the Sound. The Sound is on the North Shore. Okay. It's on the South Shore, and it would be the Great South Bay, but in Babington, it's Bolotomy Bay. <laughs> Which is, is uh, another one of your your inside jokes, isn't it? Uh, it could be. Uh, across an between... anagram? <laughs> uh, oh, is it? It could be an anagram of Lobotomy. Yeah, I'm thinking of Lobotomy and then Botany Bay. Botany Bay, uh -huh. sure. It's okay. that, too. These are incredibly witty books and with all kinds of references to, to great works, both real and imagined. <laughs> I like the uh, great, great works imagined, yeah. Yeah, like The Impractical Craftsman. Yes. Mm -hmm. Don't you wish you were a subscriber? <laughs> uh, it's, uh, Impractical Craftsman is, is something of an amalgam of all the do-it-yourself uh, magazines that my, my grandparents on both sides of the family um, subscribed to. And they were enthusiastic builders of all sorts of, of odd projects that appeared in Popular Mechanics, Science Mechanics, Mechanics Illustrated, and so on. And Impractical Craftsman is the, the Peter Leroy world version where um, the projects are even more odd and bizarre than, than they were in reality. And Peter sees one particular plan in this magazine, and he just has to build it. Well, it's irresistible. It's uh, an aerocycle that, according to Impractical Craftsmen, you can build out of easily available parts of surplus motorcycles, uh, some aluminum tubing and some fabric, and you could be flying in just uh, a weekend's time. And this is all taking place in the late 40s, early 50s? It's, uh, in, in our time, it would be about 1960. Okay. 
So Peter decides that he's going to work on this project, but but he needs parts. And, and where's he going to get a motorcycle? I, I love his visit to the junkyard. Yeah, um, the uh, salvage and wrecking place. And um, he he assumes that there must be surplus motorcycles somewhere because Impractical Craftsman has said so. But a friend of his sets him straight that there are no surplus motorcycles, but there are wrecked motorcycles. And they make a midnight run to that junkyard, thinking that they'll be able to uh, toss some parts over the fence and load them into his friend Rascal's pickup truck and and drive them away. It isn't as easy as that. It's uh, quite an amazing uh, part of the book. I, I love I love the surprise in that in that particular section. My guest is Eric Kraft. The book is flying. I hate to call it a book because it's so much more than a book. Thank you. It's many books, isn't it? It is. Uh, it, it's, it's not only that, that it's three books in a trilogy in, in one volume, um, but also it's what you said before, the way that it reaches out to other books. Not only the books, the other books in uh, the, the many volumes of Peter's memoirs, but there is that deliberate effort on, on my part to reach out to other books that have influenced me, that um, have, have meant something very strong to me, so that there are allusions uh, reaching out from from my book to those, so that we're all sort of holding hands. And the fascinating thing about memoir is it's the memory of that individual and, and whether these things really happened the way they, they happened, that's entirely up to the, the memory of the person recalling it. Yes, and uh, Peter has the universal failing of memoirists. They all lie. (laughs) (laughs) And he lies. But um, unlike very many of them, he's racked with guilt about this, and in particular in this book, uh, about the way that his his flight to New Mexico from Babington has become exaggerated over the years. He wants to set the record straight. He never really got off the ground. Uh-huh. But he made it all the way to New Mexico and back and was yeah, very did. much celebrated to the point where, as your book opens, they're getting ready to do something rather bizarre in his hometown. Yeah, they are going to turn Babington, in effect, into a theme park that they hope will attract uh, tourists. And they've chosen the one day in the recent history of Babington, relatively recent history, that um, was most celebrated in the media. And that was the day when Peter returned in triumph from what everyone assumes was a successful solo flight to Carrasso, New Mexico, and back. And it's a little like Groundhog Day. Um, <laughs> every day will be a recreation of that, of that triumphant return. And Peter and his longtime companion shadow the journey in a way. Yes. Um, They get to a point where uh, Peter, first of all, wants to go back and refresh his memory and also to see how things have changed along the way. His secret hope is that he may encounter some people he met uh, on the first trip who may have found him an unforgettable character. (laughs) This is the other failing he shares with all memoirists. His ego is enormous. Um, Albertine agrees, and they they buy an electric car, 
and take off to uh, take off figuratively to um, to retrace his steps. You might want to explain to our listeners why he wanted to go to New Mexico in the first place. Well, he had missed out on something. Um, a good friend of his had applied for a summer institute for promising high school students, an institute in uh, mathematics, physics, and weaponry, sponsored by the Preparedness Foundation in an effort to get American youth um, pepped up, primed up for interest uh, in, in mathematics, physics, and weaponry so that they could challenge the Soviet Union. But he didn't know about the Institute until it was too late to apply. So he decided he would go anyway. Mm. The book is Flying. Eric Kraft wrote it. He joins us by telephone from New Rochelle, New York. Peter is really the ultimate nerd, isn't he? <laughs> may have been at, at that time. I, I, I think he's become something else over, over the course of his life, and, but I guess there's an awful lot of the nerd left in him. Um, I, I think, uh, now that you say it, I think, for instance, of the scene in which um, he uh, gets the uh, desk clerk at one of the uh, hotels where they stop to give him permission, in effect, to run an extension cord out of the lobby into the parking lot and recharge the car uh -huh. uh, by suggesting that all he really wants to do is recharge his razor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, there's a number of uh, very notable encounters in there. I, I like the one with Frida, but we'll leave that to, to readers to discover. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I like the uh, the Museum of Olivia, too. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. An it entire town that a, a, a woman who's come into some money has bought uh, in order to turn into a museum dedicated to herself. <laughs> I like the way that you have your your uh, tempo in this book because it's over 500 pages and yet it's very punchy. It's boom, boom, boom. Some of the chapters are aren't even a page long. Yes, thank you for saying that. Yeah, I mean, it really, it <laughs> you really knew moves. I was trying to achieve that. I mean, I, I could tell. Like, yeah, and and a lot of times you'll start the next chapter with a reference to the previous chapter, like in the one where. Peter is identified as, as an egotist, and then the next chapter you started off with a quote about egotists from Ambrose Bierce. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it, it, it's meant to be a journey in small steps. Peter talks about that at one point, that um, the, the, the famously uh, statement of the obvious by uh, Lao Tzu, that uh, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, and um, he, he, he turns it around and, and asks whether... Um, a, a, a mistake begins with a single misstep, um, which it probably does. But um, so this journey, uh, instead of being the the single um, nonstop flight that he might have dreamed it would be, turns into a journey of small steps. So I hope that the that the shortness of the chapters and the way they are linked together shows that same kind of progress by small steps. And you just said dreamed, and a lot of this book seems like a dream. Sometimes I had a hard time telling if he was dreaming some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. I think it's um, it's part of his his manner of thinking that he he conceives a a project uh, partly in a dreamlike state, partly in a state of, of uh, intoxication by wishful thinking. Right. And so I think, I think that's why that quality winds up being there. 
Well, I loved it in the instances when I figured out what you were up to because I just said, oh, okay, I recognize this. They're sitting in the farmhouse. They're looking out the window. They see the bus pull up. The guy gets out. And and the guy goes, oh, this is quite an event. No one ever gets off the bus there. And then, of course, we see that it's Cary Grant, North by Northwest. But but you have to figure that out. Right. And and they sit there and they watch the whole conflagration occur. Yes. That's exactly (laughs) the way I hoped you would feel, you or or any other reader reading that. Thank you. That's uh, everything I hoped for. It's like, (laughs) ah, I actually got one of them. (laughs) You have so many. Uh, what what's the process for you uh, when when you write? Uh, do you mean my my habits or yeah. what am I trying to do? Uh, all of them. Um, okay. Well, habits. Uh, very early on, when I started um, trying to write, while I was also teaching school, I I found that the only time that I could accomplish anything was in very early morning hours. Um, later on, when I became a a freelance writer working on textbooks and so on to to pay the bills. Uh, The same was true that in the very early morning hours, I could be sure that I wasn't going to get phone calls from from clients or anyone else. So typically I start writing at five o'clock in the morning. And uh, these days I'm able to spend many more hours at it than I used to. So it, it could be that I could start at another time, but that is still the time when I can be sure that I can transport myself to Babington or into Peter's world, Peter's life. Mm. And, you know, when you first asked the question, I thought that you might wonder, what is my state of mind <laughs> uh, <laughs> in relation to the, the reader whom I don't know? Because um, what we just talked about, the way that, that North by Northwest scene creeps up on you and finally gets you. Um, I am always thinking of a reader whom I want to have some good experience like that out of the text, something, mm-hmm. something that's going to, to move the reader, surprise the reader, engage the reader, because I'm always thinking of Madeline, my wife, as the first reader. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of what's there that makes you smile or makes you say, ah, this was planted here just so I would get it, is there because it's, it's for her. Mm. I feel the same way about interviewing authors because I think about that reader out there or that listener as that person that would be wanting to hear the answer to whatever question might come into my mind from their aspect, or at least I try to come from their aspect. Yes, it's that person, yeah, whoever that may be, uh, that we do these things for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a wonderful series. How many books is it now? There are 10 now. Um, If Flying hadn't appeared in a single volume as a trilogy, there would be 13, but Uh now there are only 10. (laughs) And more uh, in the offing? Uh, Yes, I'm at work, and... um, if things go as they should, the next one should be a uh, story of Peter and Albertine's meeting. Okay. Um, an event that follows shortly after his return from New Mexico. Okay. Well, we really appreciate your time today. 
Well, thank you. The book is Flying. Eric Kraft wrote it, and he joined us by telephone from New Rochelle, where uh, it's always a pretty day, right? No, (laughs) but today it is. (laughs) Well, thanks again. Right. Thank you, Vic. And that was your Book Nook bonus segment recorded 15 years ago, my final interview with Eric Kraft. And uh, during that conversation, you heard him talking about the next book that he had written, the next uh, fictional memoir. And I did some research. I, I Googled him because, first of all, I wanted to see, number one, is he still with us? And he is. And number two, I wanted to see if that next book came out and subsequent books. And from what I can find online, that three-volume book that he put out back in 2009 was the last book in the series. I, I can't find any evidence that there were more. And are you familiar with Substack? He's on there now. And all of those books are perusable on Substack. If you look up Eric Kraft on Substack, he spells his name K-R-A-F-T. If you're interested in reading those books, I don't even know if they're still in print. Maybe they are, but you can read them at his Substack, and I believe it's free to read them. I'm not positive how Substack works. I thought it was a subscription service, but I could be wrong about that. Anyway, uh, Eric Kraft has those books, all of them, all 10 volumes available to read. If, you're, if that piqued your curiosity by listening to him talk about this amazing parallel universe that uh, he's invented, and he's still out there. The last post I saw was from late last year. He's still active out there uh, getting people to read this stuff. So uh, more power to him. Eric, uh, way to go, buddy. I think he must be pushing 80 by now. You heard that on the Book Nook on WYSO. We start off the show with Randy Overbeck, his new novel, the first in a series called Cruel Lessons. Thanks, as always, for listening to your public radio station, WYSO, and thanks for your support. I'm Vic McCunis. <laughs>